Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. looking at me unless I'm on TV. That rhymes a lot. I'm Leslie Marshall. Happy Tuesday. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Really sad, uh, psyched, not sad, psyched, hello, to be here today. I'm very excited to have Scott Paul with us. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and the AAM is a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. Now, for well over 10 years, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing, a top-of-mind issue for voters. They've been successful in that thus far. And our national leaders is successful in that as well. And they've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, Scott Paul. Happy Tuesday, Scott. How you doing? Psyched to have you with us. Hey, Leslie. It's uh, great to be with you as always. We have so much to talk about because there is so much going on. And although impeachment might be you know, at the forefront or the president angry at anchors and analysts and commentators on CNN, there are much bigger deals that are being made and being cut. When I say deals, we're talking about one that is huge to American voters, affects our economy, and certainly affects our livelihood through our jobs and corporations, whether they're here or abroad. And, you know, deficits that we have and whether anything can offset them. And we're talking about trade. Um, There is a trade deal uh, between the United States and China. Uh, A lot of people, you guys would say as well, is completely inadequate. And this is just uh, not along party lines as well. And I want to read for our listeners first a letter that the AAM sent to the White House Uh, stating that China phase one, the agreement is completely inadequate and it still leaves work. Do you mind if I read this letter first, Scott, before we discuss? Sure, Leslie. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, It's a very good letter, too. That's why. 
Dear, Pre- Dear President Trump, on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, a nonprofit, nonpartisan partnership formed in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers, I write to share our views on the Phase One trade agreement with the People's Republic of China. We appreciate how difficult it has been for U.S. negotiators to secure commitments on access to China's market, commodity purchases of American exports, and intellectual property protections. However, for American manufacturing and its workers, the Phase One agreement is completely inadequate. The agreement does not level the playing field for American workers in the U.S. or global market. With nearly all the major structural issues left unresolved, including industrial subsidies, overcapacity, state-owned enterprises, predatory investment, currency manipulation and misalignment, cyber intrusions, worker rights, environmental rules, and tax policy, we urge an immediate resumption of negotiations and sustained economic pressure. Um, The letter is long, and I want to continue to read it, but I want to cut into you know, each chunk at a time. A couple of things for people listening. How frequent is it for you as president and the AAM to send a letter to the president directly uh, regarding uh, trade or other issues under the umbrella of manufacturing? How common is it for you to write letters to the president like this? Yes, yeah, so, so Leslie, we, we do it occasionally. Um, we're, we're not frequent correspondents with the president. Um, and uh, I, I like I recall, for instance, when Trump said that he was going to try to tackle China, that we wrote and we gave him a list of suggestions about uh, things that we thought needed to be addressed. Um, and that list is largely reflected in the letter that we just sent that you referenced um, just two weeks ago. And I know it, it seems like forever or a thousand news cycles ago, but it was only two weeks ago that this deal was signed. Um, and there, the, the, the concern that I have, Leslie, I will say, is that I think the president is taking a victory lap on all of these trade issues, and um, particularly on China, uh, it doesn't necessarily deserve one. Uh, I mean, he was certainly right to raise some of these issues, and, and we've talked about this and others have for many years. Uh, but the, the deal is not done, and the deal that he got um, just a couple of weeks ago uh, is not going to uh, materially help uh, American workers and, and factory workers, the people who he claims that he is uh, trying to help through this, it's, it's not going to help them in any way. I mean, it might be a good deal for Wall Street. You saw the stock market get a big boost um, after it was done. He, he surrounded himself with Wall Street types when he when he signed this agreement with China. Um, but for uh, working men and women, uh, there's a lot to be desired. And so w- when when something like that happens, we, we do uh, write to the administration or the Congress, if appropriate, uh, and, and we tell them exactly what we think needs to be done um, to boost uh, factory workers in the United States. When you send letters like this to the president or the White House, um, do you feel that it ever has an impact? That Because seriously, if I were president of the United States and I read this letter, I might want to have a meeting with people and say, you know what? This man, this organization has some great points. Why don't we look at what we can do to address them? Because then it could be a win-win. And if it's not even a win-win, at least it's more of a win than what they currently have. Yes. Um, absolutely. I'm not holding my breath to get an invitation to the White House to talk about this with with, with the president. But uh, I will say that 
Um, one of the things that we have set out to do for the last uh, 12 years plus that we've been working at these issues is to be an honest broker. We're, we're nonpartisan and we're willing to work uh, and make suggestions um, with members of Congress and the administration when they say they want to tackle trade issues that are going to impact factory workers in the United States. And, and we've never hesitated to do that. Uh, but we also, and I think this is the important thing, and I think you'll agree that this is something that, the, that, that Trump hates, is that he hates to be held accountable. For anything that he says or, or that he does. And when you say you're going to take on China um, and you're going you're gonna to dramatically change things, um, you know, we kind of expect you to follow through. And uh, that simply hasn't happened. I mean, we've seen tariffs. We have seen this uh, phase one agreement. Uh, but fundamentally, we still have an incredibly high trade deficit with China. There's still way too many factories that uh, are shifting production to China rather than bringing it back here. Uh, when you look around you at a big box store or the technology that we all use, uh, it, it, virtually all of it's made in China. Uh, and so we have a long way to go, and we wanted to make sure the president knew that and that somebody was watching uh, and taking this very, very seriously. Okay, so let's break some of this down so that people understand. Um, when we look at American manufacturing, when we look at the workers, let's talk about why phase one specifically of this agreement is completely inadequate. One of the things that you talk about is how it does not level the playing field for American workers in the United States or the global market. Um, can Can you address that so people understand i want to break this down because just just the the this one paragraph alone that i just read or paragraph and a half which it just shows how inadequate is a very polite and delicately perhaps politically correct way of putting it when you break down how much is wrong with this or how problematic this is Uh, so let's talk first um about uh the leveling the playing field for american workers in the u.s or global market how does this not do it and and what would you recommend? Yeah, so so you know Trump did get a couple of things done. Um, you know he he got China to agree to stop what we call forced technology transfer, and that's basically when a company goes to China uh, that is not forced to give away all its technology to the Chinese government or to its joint venture partner in China. Okay, that's a, that's a fine thing, but that is not going to create jobs in the United States. It might help those companies become more profitable, but fundamentally they're producing and operating in, the, in, in China and not, not in the United States. There's, there, there's virtually no benefit for American workers out of that. Now, there's a lot of issues that Trump didn't get done and didn't even talk about that, that would impact America's workers, as you just referenced. Two of those are labor and environmental standards. Um, we all know that uh, Chinese factories, many of them are in uh, terrible working conditions. Uh, the union is a uh, is basically wholly owned by the companies and the Chinese government. The workers don't have a voice at work. Uh, China's weak labor laws are routinely exploited, uh, and and companies aren't aren't held to account for it. And the same goes for the polluting factories. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you've seen. I certainly have the, the scenes of of these big Chinese cities that are just covered in smog, 
And the only way that, uh, that they can get rid of it is Beijing just says, tells the factories to shut down for a week or two, and then they, they start them back up. And while you and I don't have to breathe that every day, and, and it, does create, it does create carbon emission issues as well, uh, the Chinese people do. And it's also reflected in the price of goods. Quite simply, they can sell the goods more cheaply in the United States because they don't have to meet the environmental controls and, and the labor, the, the, the labor uh, law rights that, that we have here in the United States and that we, and that we take very seriously. Those are just two of the issues, but there's, there's many, many more. Uh, there, there's issues with respect to putting our workers in competition directly with the Chinese government, which is basically what happens every day. The Chinese government owns uh, major companies in every sector in China, and uh, th that's no match for small businesses that are trying to compete in the global market in the United States. We can be incredibly efficient here. We can have highly skilled workers. We can have all the innovation and ingenuity that we want, uh, but simply on a matter of scale and on a matter of subsidies, we can do everything right, and China can still beat us. And that's just not fair. That, that's totally not fair, and there's nothing in this agreement that changes that equation whatsoever. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, this um, phase one of this agreement, how it's completely inadequate. We're breaking it down, and we're breaking it down with Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM. On Instagram at American Manufacturing, and on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash American Manufacturing. More with Scott, more with you right after this. Don't go away. We are back, and Scott Paul is our guest. Thank you for holding, and thank you for tuning in, talking about important issues like trade today with Scott. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Talking about a letter that you, uh, as president of the AAM and the AAM sent uh, to the president specifically regarding phase one of this trade agreement with China and how it's completely inadequate. Uh, we were breaking it down, and I had uh, mentioned in your letter that you wrote, um, and we just talked about not leveling the playing field for American workers in the U.S. or the global market, um, and, and you go on to say with nearly all the major structural issues left unresolved, including industrial subsidies, overcapacity, state-owned enterprises, predatory investment, currency manipulation and misalignment, cyber intrusions, worker rights, environmental rules, which you did touch upon, and tax policy – we urge an immediate resumption of negotiations and sustained economic pressure. Um, breaking it down even further, for, for people that don't fully uh, understand, um, can you speak to us about these industrial subsidies? Um, you say it's the most notable omission in the phase one deal, and this would address the massive financial support provided by Beijing to Chinese firms that are deemed important to its economic and security uh, interest. 
And you quote the Peterson Institute uh, saying, quote, China now devotes more than 3% of the annual output to direct and indirect business subsidies, a share of the economy that is roughly equivalent to what the United States spends on defense, uh, just to put it in perspective. Uh, Talk to us about these industrial subsidies uh, and and, and why it's essential uh, that, uh, one, voters know this is a notable omission. Um, and, and, and two, why would they omit this? Because it is so notable. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question, Leslie. And I, I, I can break it down to exactly how it affects working men and women uh, in manufacturing in the United States today. Um, there's, a, uh, th- there's a big Chinese company. Um, it's called BYD or Build Your Dreams, which sounds awesome, obviously. Who, who's not for that? Uh, they're getting into electric automobiles, um, and I'm all for electric automobiles. I, th- I think they're going to be great. But what the Chinese government has done is, is, is given this company both a captive market at home, that is no one else can compete against it, no other firm from another country like the United States can p- compete against it. And BYD has, has received hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and, and, and over the years, billions of dollars in subsidies to operate. And so that means that the firm can do all sorts of research and development, uh, that they can go ahead and manufacture, uh, and they don't have to make any money. They, they don't have to make any money at all. Um, and, and they're just they're funded by the Chinese government. It's like um, essentially, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of, of a term that, that folks will understand. It's like paying for all your kids' meals when they're a grown adult and living at home, and they should be working, basically. So it's, a, it, it's not an efficient way to do business. Um, and American firms don't operate that way. I mean, there is a, obviously a profit motivation that our firms have, but they also need to invest in their workers and invest in their machinery, um, and they're accountable to a board and the shareholders. Um, and, and they have to try to balance their books, and that's kind of the way that we're taught. And, and that's the way that business is done uh, in virtually all of the world. But the problem is that we just, you know, if, 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 if China's companies are getting lots of subsidies, they can pr- underprice their goods, uh, and they'll drive our guys out of business, or they'll drive European firms out of business, or Japanese firms out of business, or Mexican or Canadian firms out of business as well. And they'll dominate the marketplace. And this has happened in industry after industry, and that's not healthy for competition, and it has cost jobs in the United States. As, as you referenced, Leslie, I mean, it's cost us millions of jobs uh, over the last uh, over the last two decades, and uh, it's still happening, even on this president's watch. And we we, we have to put a stop to it. Uh, otherwise, we'll con- we'll continue to see more manufacturing move offshore, uh, which is something we just can't afford. Uh, definitely, we're going to take a break uh, again. That was our shortest uh, segment, and when we come back, we'll continue uh, to talk about not just this letter, but the specifics in this letter, why it's important to voters and why phase one of this trade deal between the United States and China is completely inadequate. Uh, We'll continue to talk about this and to talk about this letter that I've read you uh, parts of. We'll be back. (coughs) Excuse me. We'll be back and we'll be talking more with Scott and with you right after this. Don't go away.
We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with our guest, Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And we are talking about the completely inadequate U.S.-China phase one or the trade deal in phase one of that trade deal. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, we've addressed uh, some areas. Uh, I want to talk about some others that voters uh, need to be and our listeners as voters need to be uh, aware of. Um, and you break this down in the letter. You talk about state-sponsored overcapacity. And you talk about driven by subsidies and other non-market actions. China continues to increase production beyond what its own market or the global market can consume across a range of industrial sectors. And, and, and you touch upon steel and aluminum being the tip of the iceberg. And, and you talk about more attention that must be paid. Uh, I don't want to go more into the letter because I want you to tell folks, listen, so, so that people understand, how can China continue to increase production beyond what its own market or the global market can consume uh, across a range of industrial sectors? And, and, and why do they do that? And, and what does that do to you know, the, the world economy, uh, to manufacturing, uh, to workers, to steel, to aluminum? Can you please uh, address this state-sponsored overcapacity? Sure, Leslie. Um, and it has, and the important thing to understand is that it has real-world implications, and, and and implications for the jobs and wages of American workers, particularly those who don't have a four-year college degree. And so that's that's why we're talking about issues like this. But so, so I will say, what China is doing is something that other. Uh, countries have attempted in the past is that you grow your economy by exporting products and you try to build up uh, national wealth that way um, instead of building up your own own consuming class. Now, to do this correctly, there needs to be a balance. You, you can build up your manufacturing, you can export a lot of products, you take in the money for that, but at the same time, you also have to raise the wages of your middle of, of your workers so that they become middle class and can buy products from other countries as well. And and in theory, you're going to achieve some balance. Well, that obviously hasn't happened with China, and it's troubling for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, is the scale is that China's just bigger than any other competitor that's moved from essentially a developing nation to a rapidly industrializing nation in a very short amount of time uh, with, with an incredible amount of manufacturing capacity. China now makes um, more goods than any other country uh, in the world. Um, and in some sectors, it makes a almost all of the goods. I mean, the steel sector, uh, you think about the smartphone sector, you think about others, um, it's making uh, the vast majority of the world's products uh, in, in those sectors. And the reason why it's able to do this is, again, that it, its own government policies, and it's a very state-driven economy, say that we want to boost our manufacturing, whether it's in semiconductors or steel and nanotechnology, biotechnology, electric vehicles. There are dozens and dozens of industries where China just wants to boost its capacity uh, to become the world leader in it. And, and I, I don't um, I, I don't uh, want to deny China the opportunity to succeed or to be incredibly successful or, or to be competitive in any of these industries. But when it comes at the expense 
of workers in other countries when it's exporting its own problems along with its goods. That's where it gets real, and this is what the problem is. Uh, now, China joining the World Trade Organization uh, as it did uh, nearly 20 years ago was supposed to change all that, but it didn't. And no president has held China to account. Uh, in fact, no group of governments has really held China to account. So for the last two decades, for the majority of the last two decades, China has allowed to continue this policy unabated. And it's gotten to the point where it has had a dramatic uh, impact on manufacturing, not only in the United States, but in other countries as well. And you see this, Leslie, reflected in the prospects in communities that, that were once proud manufacturing hubs uh, and, and have seen things slip. Um, and everything from Silicon Valley in, Cal in California, where they used to make iPhones as well as, or, or they, I'm sorry, they didn't make iPhones, but they made Mac computers uh, as well as designing them. Now they only design things to steel cities like Buffalo, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, uh, or auto cities like uh, like Detroit. And it, it has an impact across America. It, it impacts uh, the job opportunities that are available to our workers. Uh, and it's caused us to move into a position of deficit in trade. We used to export a lot. Now we don't export um, as much as we used to as a share of, of, of the global economy. Uh, China has made, has, has made up that slack, uh, and, and we're racking up trade deficits uh, in a big way. And, and so, look, I, one thing that I give Trump credit for is for raising these issues. These China issues are very important, but his approach so far hasn't been effective. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, let's talk, we go from state-sponsored overcapacity to state-owned enterprises. Uh, and you write of the new regulation implemented by Beijing that appears to give China an even greater role in the decision-making and control over its SOEs, state-owned enterprises. Um, according to accounts in the news, this, quote, provisional regulation requires a Communist Party entity within each corporate structure to review business decisions before they are presented to the board of directors uh, or, or management. Also, these SOEs receive massive subsidies, are deeply aligned with Beijing's broader economic and security goals as part of its military civil fusion strategy, and you go on. How on earth can we get around these SOEs in any type of deal? It, 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 tell us more about this, and what would you recommend? Yeah, sure, Leslie. Well, the theory is that eventually these state-owned enterprises will be inefficient, primarily because they're subsidized and they don't have to make a profit. But so far, it's been more than 30 years, and, and they're bigger than ever. Uh, so so that, that theory hasn't worked out. And it is an extraordinary issue for American industry, because when you think about, um, you know, aerospace, you look at a company um, like Boeing or Lockheed Martin in the United States, been around for a long time. Boeing certainly had some challenges lately. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't talk about the aerospace industry with, without talking about American dominance in it. Well, there, there will be and there is a Chinese state-owned company that wants to dominate the aerospace market. And it will be incredibly heavily subsidized by the Beijing government. And uh, you, we, we just are unwilling, unable, and won't match that because that's not the way our economy operates. And so is it right for a state-owned enterprise in China to dominate, one day dominate the aerospace industry? And that could very well be the case unless we insist that Beijing 
play by the rules. A current example, Leslie, is steel. Five of the 11 largest steel companies in the world are owned by the Chinese government. They're not private sector companies. They're owned by the Chinese government. And so if you're a steel worker in the Midwestern United States, you're not competing against steel workers against other private sector firms around the world. You're actually competing with the Chinese government and the trillions of dollars that it has to throw at these industries. So again, completely wrong, anti-competitive. It's costing jobs in the United States. And Trump's deal with China doesn't touch it uh, in any way, shape or form. Uh, restricting predatory investment is something else that you outline in the letter. Uh, and, and speaking again about, you know, uh, like you said, you're dealing with the government. You talk about China's state-owned, state-subsidized or state-supported enterprises that have begun setting up assembly operations in the United States. Uh, they're backed by deep government support you just mentioned, uh, the China Railroad, uh, Rolling Stock Corporation, CRRC, and Build Your Dreams, BYD, have begun securing lucrative U.S. taxpayer-supported contracts to supply our major cities with transit rail cars and electric buses. What recourse do we have, uh, and, and, and I'm not talking about just with a deal, um, but with manufacturers and, and, and those in manufacturing, those within steel, those within uh, aluminum, the unions, the workers, uh, the factory owners, is there anything that they can all do to push the president's hand, if you will, in, in a certain direction with regard to this? Yes, Leslie. The, the short answer is yes. And, you know, the in the past, so I, I would describe the, the approach of various administrations since China became a dominant uh, manufacturing power. Bush basically stuck his head in the sand and wished that everything would go away. Um, and it didn't. And obviously, the, the situation got worse. Obama was hopeful that talking to China would make a difference. Um, and uh, and so they continued to dialogue, but China kind of ran out the clock and, and it went nowhere. Now, Trump obviously wants to push back very aggressively, but, but the major flaw with his approach is that he's not enlisting any other countries around the world to do it. And I think you need to, to build an alliance to do this effectively, because otherwise China, as it has, is just able to retaliate against the United States and to pick a couple of sensitive industries, and then it, get, it gets caught up in, in, uh, in politics, um, and it becomes much more difficult. Um, but the, the recourse that our firms and our, um, and our workers have, you know, one is to take a case to the World Trade Organization. That's not my preferred route frankly, because it just takes a long time for the World Trade Organization to resolve things. And the odds are that China will just find another subsidy uh, or, 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 or kind of operation to put in place of, of one that it was asked to, to get rid of. And so pushing an administration, whether it's Democratic or Republican, Republican, to tackle this head on and to threaten tariffs against China uh, when it's done in concert with our allies, I think could be an effective approach. Uh, but that's one that this administration administration so far hasn't tried. It's tried to go it alone, and it hasn't worked. I want to talk about the monitoring of uh, this phase one of this agreement, and, and that you and the AAM, and you as president of the AAM, right, we must vigorously monitor China's progress in complying with the phase one agreement. If promises are not kept, tariffs should be promptly restored, including those that were scheduled to take effect in December 2019. China has a long history of making oversized promises only to abandon them with the attraction uh, with the attention shifts elsewhere. Similarly, any future deal that does not include a strict and automatic enforcement mechanism with meaningful repercussions should China renege will have limited to no value. 
Um, wh- why wouldn't, especially somebody who, you know, beats his chest and talks tough like Trump, have a very strong, uh, uh, you know, monitoring included in this phase one uh, of of this agreement, especially because everything you listed about China is accurate. It's actually the same kind of thing that we, we've seen with North Korea, right? That's one of the reasons we've never been able to have kind of a deal with North Korea. They smile, they shake hands, they snap the photos, they're in a room, they agree, they turn around, uh, you even have a deal, and then they completely disregard what has been agreed upon in a deal in the deal. We've seen this historically with China, especially. Um, so, so wh- why would this be something? Th- this to me is a no-brainer, and again, uh, does does not have any political bias. It's common sense. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. And, and so, you know, I, I will say um, the agreement does say that if the United States thinks that China is not complaining, not not complying with the agreement on a specific item they can the, the the trade ministers can talk about it for 90 days and then the u.s could potentially reimpose some tariffs and leslie i would just say i think the challenge with that and, and you've probably seen this as well is that you know trump goes hot and cold on on this tariff strategy and when he when he thinks he can get away with it he goes hot on the tariffs and he, he tries to double down on them um, and when the market reacts, the stock market reacts, then he goes a little cold. And um, I don't want our trade policy to be dictated by the stock market. I, I think it has to be uh, dictated by objective criteria. And again, I think that we're stronger. We're much stronger when we can enlist our allies in Europe, Canada, Mexico, uh, Japan uh, and elsewhere around the world to press China at the same time. That way, China is going to have a much harder time in retaliating. Because if if if, uh, if China decides to retaliate again, if if we raise tariffs, um, it can do so in a in a way that that impacts our our domestic politics. You think of all the all the challenges, you know, in farm communities uh, and 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 uh, what what has happened over the last uh, year and a half. And China was able to. Uh, wreak havoc with, with its tariff retaliation uh, because we went it alone. And so I would prefer, again, to see a much more comprehensive approach and, and one that also includes some investment in our own workers and our own industry um, because we have to realize that if we're going to compete against China, we, 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 we need to both have an aggressive, assertive trade policy. We need to do the right things here at home as well. Um, and that you know, just hoping China's going to play by the rules uh, is a strategy that, that we've tried, uh, but it, it's failed time and time again. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more about this with Scott, uh, and uh, we'll talk more about uh, phase one of this trade agreement that Scott Paul is president of the AAM and the AAM find to be completely inadequate. We'll be back and talk more about this with you. Don't go away. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall. He is Scott Paul, our guest, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And we are talking about trade, the trade deal with U.S. and China, or specifically phase one, uh, which uh, Scott Paul and the AAM call completely inadequate. And they actually penned a letter to the White House 
uh, stating that China Phase 1 agreement is completely inadequate. It still leaves work, and they talk about that specifically in the letter. If you've just joined us, uh, we've been breaking it down and talking about not only this letter, but the specifics that make it inadequate, this Phase 1 of the U.S.-China trade deal. Uh, Scott, you do uh, credit the president, as you did at the onset of um, our discussion today. Uh, You did in the letter. You talk about him and his administration deserving credit for recognizing our nation's flawed economic relationship with China, taking strong measures to prompt negotiations. Uh, You even talk about something no previous administration has been willing to do. Um, And uh, you talk about uh, tariffs. You touch upon that, that those who have criticized the use of tariffs fail to understand uh, what is at stake. And and then you go on to say and to talk about this being a long-term process and that the process will require a sustained bipartisan commitment on the part of all U.S. policymakers, including both the current and future administrations. As divided as our nation is, and especially how we are really divided along party lines, is this an area where there can be bipartisan support, trade for such a policy? We see Democrats and Republicans agreeing on tariffs, for example. Uh, Could they be truly involved in this long-term process uh, with a sustained bipartisan commitment? Yeah, Leslie, that is the question I don't know the answer to. And if I did, I think I would have cracked the code. But but I want to remind folks that you know trade used to be what I would call an inside-outside issue, is that you had the insiders of both parties, that is like the Wall Street types, um, the, the, the wealthy donors, you know, for a trade policy that gave away a lot um, and, and sold out our manufacturing. These were Democrats and Republicans, I'm sorry to say. So what you have now, obviously, is Trump taking action on this. Um, you know, he, I think he does deserve criticism for, uh, you know, some of his follow through and the, the, the kind of the haphazard way in which he's approached it. He, he deserves a lot of credit for, for raising these issues. Um, but but w- what I see Democrats, and I, I've been following this pretty closely, tend to say is that China is a challenge. It's, I think almost all the Democratic candidates believe China is a major challenge. In fact, several of them believe China is the biggest challenge that we're going to face in the years to come. Uh, only, I think, Mike Bloomberg, who has done a lot of business in China, thinks that things are kind of okay there now. But but he's certainly the outsider and probably the guy who's the most out of touch with, with average kind of working people as well. So, so you have this belief that China is a challenge, and then you have to look at the approach. And I think that there's a lot of concern among the Democratic candidates that, that the agricultural community has been hit because of retaliation. But at the same time, I, I think many uh, many of the Democratic candidates also realize it would be a mistake just to go back to way, the, the way things were, that that wasn't working as well. And so there's, there's a lot of nuance uh, to the Democratic approach on this. It's not just anti-Trump um, at all. In fact, several Democrats have urged Trump to be tougher on China. Sherrod Brown, um, uh, Chuck Schumer uh, were, th- were that way in particular. So let's hope that they, they take their cues from guys like Senator Sherrod Brown as we move yep. forward, because I'd love to see this become a bipartisan issue again, Leslie. Absolutely. Very quickly, less than 60 seconds. Uh, the forthcoming EPI report that's going to be released later this month uh, shows that we have a growing U.S. Uh, the growing U.S. trade deficits with China eliminated 3.7 million jobs between 2001 and 2018. And this China trade deal will not restore the 3.7 million U.S. jobs lost since China entered the WTO in 2001. Quickly, comments. 
Yeah, so things are still bad for American manufacturing workers when it comes to Chinese imports. We've lost 700,000 jobs since Trump has been president, 3.7 million over the last 20 years. And obviously the unemployment rate is low, but the problem is job quality. And if you're losing those factory those factory jobs, you're not getting a better job. You're getting a job that pays less, that has an impact on our middle class. We want to change that, Leslie. Thank you, Scott. That was a post. Very well done. Thank you. Um, uh, appreciate that. Appreciate you and the AAM. The website for American is AmericanManufacturing.org for the AAM. Follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM on Instagram at American Manufacturing and on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash American Manufacturing. I'm Leslie Marshall.